Welcome back to the Segment Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is the week of June 7th. We've got some Dauphiné to talk about, some tortoise suisse, some unbound gravel. And to do so, most of the usual crew. We are missing Abby today. I believe she's trying to get back to Europe. Anyway, she's traveling at the moment. We've got Dane. How are you, Dane? Yeah, doing fine. How are you doing? I'm so good. We have Ronan. How's your roof, Ronan? Uh, my eyes are filled with the dust of a thousand roof tiles. <laughs> <laughs> so Ronan can't see. Cycling glasses <laughs> do not protect you from, from roof tile dust. <laughs> Weird. Weird. I would have thought that it would have worked fine. James, how are you this fine Monday? Uh, I'm a little tired. I just did a, a four-night van, van little road trip, or a, a four-night van trip in our 1995 40 Line Creeper van. So yeah. d- did a little vacation, but I'm, I now I need a vacation from my vacation. Mm, such is the nature of adventure vacations, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Shoddy Dave, you're high on pain medication. How are you today? I'm out my tree on pain medication. Uh, <laughs> tra- tra- tramadol, that's the one, the tramadols, yeah. Last weekend, I went on the podcast because I managed to dislocate my shoulder several hours before it. And since then, I've had uh, a bit of an operation on Thursday e- e- oh, Sorry, Thursday evening. And, I've, yeah, I've been on painkillers since then. So, yeah, I'm in a world of pain, but also seeing many strange things float past my eyes that aren't really there. <laughs> So we we thought it would be fun. We thought it would be fun just to have Shadi on for our weekly Continental ad. Uh, we'll see if he can get through it. We'll see how many how many takes this one takes. Shadi, what are we learning about Continental this week? Okie dokie, Continental. <laughs> <laughs> Continental is synonymous with the world of cycling, but that's only part of the Conti picture. Continental, as many of you will know, also produce automotive tyres. And yet we know this is a cycling podcast, but we also know that there are no so uh, that there are no shortages. Uh, oh, not here we go. <laughs> but we also know there are no shortage of car fans amongst us. The beauty of all this, the beauty of all that oh, flipping neck. <laughs> I didn't realise I was that bad. <laughs> that's this might have been nearly, a bad idea. That's nearly three days of painkillers seeping out of me. The beauty of all that Conti does is that technology and learning can be shared. German precision, efficiency, and pursuit of the best possible tyres means that when you put a set of GP 5000 Terra Speed or Urban, oh, don't get me to pronounce that when I'm I, Terraxagum. Terraxagum. tires on your bike, you're using the best you can get. And of course, Conti have great tires for the family wagon as well. Did I do any good there, lads? I think you nailed it, 100%. Better than usual. Yeah. Shoddy the one take wonder. Yeah, that's what we're going to call you from now on. I, I, I bet this time around Continental will be like, oh, Dave's saying the, the name right. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Conti for sponsoring 
this week's episode and, well, all of our other episodes this year. We do appreciate you, and we appreciate you, Shoddy, uh, for taking a moment away from your tramadol-induced hallucinations uh, to join us on the podcast today. You, you may now go and return to your recovering. To be honest, I've not got anything to talk about cycling this week because I've not watched any... Though I have watched the new movie star Netflix documentary In the Monks Sleeping. Pretty good. Really? Season two. We'll yeah. save that for another time, eh? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a lot better than the first. I watched that with no pain medication and found it incredibly difficult to follow. There's like so many scenes and, and yeah, it was just snapping from one time of the year to another. So yeah, fair play to you if you got through that. The first season's very much like that. Like that it's not so coherent. But the second season, I do feel like they've nailed it, ironed it out a bit, and then gone, actually, yeah, let's just do Tor, Giro, Vuelta, rather than jumping backwards and forwards. So well worth a watch if you've got Netflix and you want to watch a bit of cycling. and I'll a check more that out. Inter-team inter rivalry than ever before. I was going to say that, that the most entertaining thing about the first season there was just that you had three GC leaders that hated each other, and it was really obvious. <laughs> and I was wondering if that would be the case in season two. It sounds like got to check it out. Definitely, All right. definitely. All right. Thanks, Shoddy. We appreciate you coming on. Have a, have a restful, restful end of your day. Cheers, fellas. Enjoy the podcast. See you, Shoddy. Okay, fellas. We've got quite a lot to talk about today and limited time to talk about it because I have to go to Lowe's and return a dishwasher, which is really, I'm pretty, pretty excited about that today. Hey, while you're there, would you mind picking up a new garbage disposal for me? Because ours kind of crapped out yesterday. Um, you just take the one that's in my house. It's, we're selling it anyway. Oh, okay. No one will ever know. We'll do. We'll do. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's get right to it. Let's... We kick off with the Dauphiné, perhaps. Like I said, we've got Dauphiné, we've got Unbound, we've got a bit of Tour de Suisse to talk about. We're going to be talking once again about uh, the UCI and its inability to, well, basically have good rules and regulations. The, the UCI <laughs> continuing to be UCIing. Yeah, they, they, they UCI'd once again, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But let's kick off with the Dauphiné. So, Dane, who won the Dauphiné? Richie Port won the Dauphiné, which is, uh, I, I was really happy to see that for a, a number of reasons. I mean, I, I was happy to see Richie Port win a race that he has been close to winning in the past. Uh, of course, a few years ago, he was up there, uh, looked like he was going to win, and then got out-tactixed, I guess you could say, uh, and ended up not winning the race. Uh, and now, to see him take that victory at the age of 30... Six? Yeah, he's 36. Uh, it was great. Good to see for Richie Port. Uh, I, I like to see Richie Port do well, because we've seen him do well, do well, but we've also, we've also seen him have heartbreaking uh, crashes and other things take him out of races so often in his career. So, Richie Port won the race. Uh, it was also nice to see because not only did Rich, Richie Port win the race, Richie Port's teammate, Garrett Thomas, finished third overall. And Richie Port's teammate, Garrett Thomas, also won a stage. Theo Gegenhart, also a teammate, finished... 10th overall. So we had the three Ineos Grenadiers who we thought were going to do quite well at this race, did quite well at the race. And uh, we came out of the race, I think, with more questions instead of fewer questions about you know, who's going to lead the team heading into the tour, which I am delighted by because it gives us a lot of drama and intrigue to discuss. Uh, I think Richie Port has earned himself 
a chance to have some kind of leadership role at the Tour de France, and I love that. Uh, I don't think that they're going to talk about that much. I don't think Ineos is going to really go public with with uh, with that, but I do think they're going to give him a chance. I think they're going to at least have him as like a option 1D instead of option not. So I'm happy with the way things played out here. I don't know if I agree with you. Is Richie Port going to win the Tour de France? I don't think so. No. But I, I don't think any of those other riders are either. I mean, I Garen Thomas is pretty impressive to me and sort of form timing wise looks it's often it's often a rider from kind of like third to tenth at the Dauphiné who ends up doing quite well at Tour de France. Although Ineos kind of ruined that over the last decade or so because they kept winning the Dauphiné and winning the Tour de France. But in general, you know, you don't want to be sort of tip top, ready, hundred percent ready to go at the Dauphiné, and that's kind of what Garrett Thomas looked like to me. I know I said just a couple of weeks ago that I thought he couldn't win the Tour either, and I still kind of believe that. But I I think if you're trying to overhaul the Slovenians. I still think he is probably a better shot than Port. And you don't want, you know, we were talking about Movistar earlier. You don't want a Movistar Trident or a Tudent or any of those dents because they don't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I feel like Ineos is quite good. That doesn't stop people from trying, though. No, no. I mean, Ineos is quite good at... at uh secretly basically having one leader but then sort of telling everybody they've got two or three uh and really sort of going with that and i I think that we'll you know we'll see an incident sometime in the first week of the tour de france where richie port you know does something for garrett thomas that makes it quite clear that that is the hierarchy of that team that's my guess i think they kind of need a quadrant that's already a word and that doesn't mean the same thing as what i'm going for here but uh, <laughs> I think they need a, a, a quadrident. We already decided that's a fork. Yeah, we need a fork. I think Ineos needs a fork because if you look at Roglic and, and Pogacar versus the Ineos lineup, I, 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 th- I agree that Garen Thomas is probably their best chance to win, uh, or, or maybe Richard Carpas. We'll see at the Tour de Suisse. I do think Carpas has been uh, the best Ineos Grand Tour rider most recently uh, that's going to the Tour because he did you know, take on Roglic at the Vuelta last year, finished second there, and he looked really great. Uh, I don't think any of their riders, any four of those guys, is good enough to beat Roglic or Pogacar one-on-one. I think they really have to go with something like a Movistar Trident and just constantly attack. Because if they go with their old-school plan of get a lead early and hold on to it, it's not going to work. Because Roglic and Pogacar are better climbers than any of the four riders or any of the five riders or any of the eight riders are going to bring to the to the Tour de France. Uh, and I think that just that plan... For once, for this super strong team, though, it's it's not going to work versus these two better riders. I, I mean, that plan fundamentally requires that you that you have the strongest rider in the race. Is exactly. what you're getting at, and I and I 100% agree. And you know, that was Dane. You've made this point many many times. In that, you know, people always sort of, oh, well, Chris Froome won the Tour de France because of his team, or or Bradley Wiggins won because of his team. I mean, yes, kind of. It allows for super defensive riding. It allows for very conservative riding but you still need the best rider in the race for that particular tactic to work. The only way that you win a bike race without the best rider in the race is if, as you say, you kind of just keep chucking things at the wall and hope to take some sort of tactical coup. And, and Ineos is, I, I agree. I think they're going to have to do that. And we've seen them be more aggressive throughout this season. We've talked about that a bunch of times. We're not sure we're actually going to see that at the Tour de France, but if I'm sitting around you know, director sportif at Ineos, 
deciding what our sort of like big picture tactic and strategy is going to be. I'm with you. I think it's kind of got to be chuck some things at the wall. That said, I still think Ineos has always been quite good at coming in with a one true leader that they're really, really riding for. And even if it looks like they have three or four, I think there's one internally. It's that one that one thing chuck at the wall they really want to stick. And I agree. I think that Garen Thomas probably is is the guy for that. But I do think I hope they give Richie Port a chance to be thrown at the wall. Um, that sounds rough for him, but I, I think in a figurative <laughs> sense, uh, he, he'll appreciate that. Like one of those sticky frogs on a sticky string. You guys have you ever played with those things when you were a kid? Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. When I was a kid, like recently. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, that's why I had a kid, just so I could play with those again and and not look like. Oh, a weirdo. you have no idea no. The, the fun that's in store for you. <laughs> so many toys, so many toys. To stick with Indios, I thought it was really interesting watching the race and seeing that Teo Gegenhart was not quite at the same level as Garen Thomas and Richie Port, who were two, the, the, the two clear top Ineos riders of the race. Because Gegenhart has, I think he kind of needs to have a good race, or needs to have had a good race, to, to kind of prove himself in that hierarchy. And he had a fine race. I mean, there's nothing wrong with coming in 10th overall to Dauphiné. I could never do that. Uh, but if you're, if you're Ineos and you're looking at, you know, who's, who's on form right now, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a of a question mark, I think, for Gegenhart, whether he deserves to have the same amount of of uh, leadership coming in as Garen Thomas and perhaps as Richard Carpas, who I think is going to win the Tour de Suisse. Uh, yeah, the question mark for Gegenhart. At the same time, interesting, and, and I think it, it's a tough position for anyone else to be in. If you're pretty much Roglic or, or Tadej Pogacar, you don't really have to worry about proving your form right now. And I think that's a good place to be because you talked about, Kelly, just a minute ago, you don't really want to be at your very best at the Dauphiné. Uh, and if you're an Ineos rider right now, you you kind of need to be pretty close to prove that you're worthy of leadership uh, within that team. And of course, you did sign up for that if you joined the Ineos Grenadiers. But that is where they are right now. They, they kind of have to be at, at better form than maybe they should be. Whereas guys like Roglic and Pogacar, who have just skipped the tune-up races altogether, uh, or at least the two big ones, they don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about showing that they're in good form almost a month ahead of the race. So Roglic and Pogacar can kind of not take it easy. I mean, they're training quite hard right now, I'm sure, but they don't have to have that same concern. And that's going to help them, I think. It's just another thing that's going to be in their favor heading into the tour. Hot take, hot take. Teo needs to leave Ineos if he really wants to to, to make a go of it. Because I, I just don't feel like, you know, we've talked about how his his Giro win was sort of in a in a less than stellar field. Uh, lots of young riders, lots of lots of future stars, but not a lot of current ones. Uh, I just don't, particularly with with Bernal appearing to be sort of back. I just don't see Teo getting opportunities at, in particular, the Tour de France, which is you know it's the big show, right? It's what you want. I don't think he can do it while he's there, but I also don't think, I think like like many riders who leave Ineos, I think he would potentially struggle elsewhere. So, yeah, it's a tough one for him. Tough one for him. We'll see how he does this this summer. I I still think he's going to be very much in a super domestic role uh, for at least the next year or two at almost every major race that he does. At least he can kind of wait around. I mean, Garen Thomas and Richie Porte are both at an age where you don't really expect them to be winning Tours de France for much longer. Well, certainly not Richie Porte, who's never won one, but Garen Thomas even is getting up there in, in years um, for a professional cyclist, not for a cycling tips writer, but for a professional cyclist, he's getting up there in the years. <laughs> and uh, I, I wouldn't think he's going to be that much of a contender for that much longer. So Gegenhardt can kind of just wait around, at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of picturing, you know, uh, Porte, retires thomas retires 
you know, five years from now, what does that team look like? It potentially is still wrapped around Egan Bernal, and I think Teo yeah. is, w- would, would need to consider looking elsewhere at that point. But as you say, he's got plenty of time to do that. Plenty of time. Plenty and of maybe time. Garen Thomas doesn't retire anytime soon, and he pulls a Alejandro Valverde and sticks around until he's in his 40s. Uh, for those who didn't watch the Dauphiné, Alejandro Valverde won a stage at the Dauphiné this weekend, which was pretty impressive. Uh, Valverde is, of course, now 41 years old, still winning World Tour races. Uh, good, good for him, I guess. I think we need to come up with a new with a new unit to describe his age. <laughs> he's two bushels. He's, he's one Valverde old. <laughs> and he's nearly two Evanapools old. I mean, not exactly, but that really kind of puts it in perspective, but, I think. But he is only three quarters of a rebelling old. Oh, that's so he's got, he's got time left. That's yet. true. That's the that's the ideal unit right there. I like that unit. He hasn't hit his peak yet, right? We got plenty of time. Last sort of a uh, bit of analysis in the Dauphiné here. So I have complained numerous times about the fact that there are two overlapping Tour de France preparation races, which splits up our our contenders and makes it really really hard to actually draw any conclusions from these races ahead of the Tour. Uh, I just personally think that two, two overlapping world tour preparation races for the Tour de France is stupid. It makes no sense from a fan perspective. Well, you know, we want to watch all these guys racing each other as much as possible. That aside, like I said, it does make it really difficult to actually take anything out of these races in terms of what, what's going to happen. Well, now in June, because the tour starts early, but normally in July, Lutsenko was second. <laughs> like, what can we actually take from this Dauphiné, Dane? Like, who else looked good? Who else looked bad? Can we even really draw any conclusions? Yeah, I kind of liked that Ineos brought so many riders to the race because I think we can kind of compare them against each other because they were all at the same race. But at the same time, I don't think that we can come out of the Dauphiné thinking, oh, you're suddenly a favorite for the Tour de France when Roglic and Pogacar are not even here. And yeah, as you pointed out, the, the profile... Uh, Alexei Lutsenko, by the way, extremely talented rider. I wish he got more credit for what he's good at, which is stages and one-week races. But... If the race is not hard enough for him to, if he's still second overall, that means the race is not that hard from a you know high altitude steep climb perspective. So I don't know how much we can take of tour favorites out of this, and 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 without the the two big favorites of the race here. Uh, basically, I just want to caution our listeners against thinking that Richie Port is an out and out favorite to win the tour just because he won the Dauphiné. Much like Andrew Tolansky was not an out and out favorite to win the tour, and Jakob Fulsong twice was not not a favorite to even maybe finish on the podium even though after he won the Dauphiné both times people were talking about him like a potential tour podium finisher uh, I think we've learned just because the Sky teams of old won this race and went on to win the tour so many times doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win the tour if you win the Dauphiné uh, I think I think Port was fairly clear in his post-race interview though he said that uh, well he was it was it wasn't clear at all but he he clearly said I uh, I know what my job is for the tour um, which might suggest or would suggest that he's going to be at the service of others. Um, but I, I'm hoping that means he, he's going to be sent on long range attacks and, and make for some really good entertaining watching. And yeah, we, you know, we had Luxenso, Luk, Lukchenko second. Um, and perhaps that's, you could look at the flips of that and that's an indicator that, you know, all right, Richie Port won the race, but perhaps he's not at his top level either because the other competition on the on the podium didn't, uh, isn't, isn't of that Grand Tour winning uh, status either. Yeah, I would agree with that. They're probably all a little bit off at the moment, but Port was the least off. So 
All right, let's move on from the Dauphiné. Let's move on from the Dauphiné. Should we should we continue with road racing or go into a bit of unbound gravel discussion? It's it's kind of a it's like unpaved road racing. It know? is. Yeah. It's just a giant long like road race from 1904. <laughs> it's basically what unbound gravel is. In which case it would be a short race. Yeah, in which case it would absolutely well, you could do the 350, you could do the XL, which took like 22 hours, basically a 500k gravel race. Yeah, sounds not fun. Anyway, there was there is live coverage of Unbound over the weekend, which is kind of cool on Flow Sports, and I actually watched a fair amount of it. Good racing. The I would say the men's race kind of ended up roughly as we would kind of expect. There's a bunch of former World Tour riders at on the start line these days. Uh, ended up being won by Ian Boswell. He used to ride for Team Sky and Katusha uh, in a one-up sprint against. Lawrence Tendam, who, well, rode for a whole bunch of teams, including Rabobank and a bunch of others. Um, Tendam, a couple years ago, retired and turned himself into a gravel racer, and I think moved to Southern California and just, like, hangs out and surfs and rides gravel now. Sounds like kind of the ideal the ideal life. And then shortly behind them, Pete Stetna, another former World Tour Pro, and Ted King, another former World Tour Pro. Uh, and then Colin Strickland, the first non-World Tour Pro to come across the line, I believe. Strickland also had some, I think, some food poisoning issues earlier in the week. So a pretty impressive day from him uh, for a race where, you know, you need to have your your glycogen stores topped up before you start that thing uh, to have an, a, a sort of some sort of stomach issue in the week prior and then still have a pretty decent ride was incredibly impressive. A couple other sort of notable things. Uh, Quinn Simmons, who I think, I personally think was sort of a hot favorite for this race because he's an active World Tour pro, unlike the rest who are retired. He crashed out with a, what appeared to be a somewhat serious knee injury. He needed stitches and things. Don't have a, we don't have an actual medical report on that yet, but he did have to crash out, he crashed out of the race. And his teammate, Keel Reinen, friend of the podcast, uh, ran something like 18 miles in his socks. So Keel, for those who don't know Keel. This is not surprising at all. Not surprising in the slightest. He, Keel is sort of the the natural, he's the natural successor to like Swain Tuft, right? And if you've ever heard of Swain Tuft, he's the uh, Canadian who like stuck his dog in a burly trailer and rode 2,000 miles to team camp one time. That, that's the sort of individual, at, at the Giro, Swain used to just walk up into the hills uh, in the morning before stages barefoot and go and like meditate and stretch and stuff. This is the kind of individual we're, we're talking about. And like I said, Keel is kind of the natural successor. He's from a little island up in uh, Pacific Northwest. And um, I'm not the least bit surprised that when his bike broke or his wheel broke somewhat early in the race, he just started huffing it. He, he sort of like bodged the bike back together as best he could so the wheel would turn and just started running quite quickly because he's a fit individual. <laughs> he was running like like eight minute miles or something like that. I mean, I'm in socks. I'm gonna assume that Keel either has a whole bunch of kids who play with Lego and leave their bricks all over the floor, and he regularly steps on them barefoot in the morning when he wakes up. Or he does have at least one. I know. Or, or yeah. he was running on, along the side of the road because those rocks are not dull; they are quite pointy. Well, which is one of the reasons why this race is so challenging on equipment. And for him to be running in socks, that either, may, that either means that his feet are like completely impervious to pain or he's used to stepping on Lego all the time. 
<laughs> Amazingly impressive either way. Uh, and, and you know, like that's, there's a lot of sort of discussion about the code of gravel and not making it too road roady and things like that. In particular, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about this because of the, the, the sort of road talent that is showing up at these events now. But it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of this road talent, people like Keel, they're still fundamentally just cyclists. I, I, I raced Keel in college. He was a, he was racing for, for CU and he would rock up and of course win a lot. Uh, but he's just like a normal cyclist like anybody else. And, and these guys showing up at a, at a gravel race is not going to immediately ruin a gravel race, particularly when you come at it with a, well, with an attitude like Keel did where I'm going to run to the next uh, checkpoint and then see if I can get a wheel or fix a wheel or something like that. Yeah, I'd, pretty amazing stuff. I dare say he earned a few. I dare say he earned quite a few fans because of that. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm. I just love it. I love it. Keel and I once got this is a random story. Keel and I once got uh, stuck in Boston on the way back from the Middle East in those early season bike races, and uh, big snowstorm or something like that. And my brother lives in Boston, so we just went to my brother's house and played like three hours of Wii tennis, waiting for the. <laughs> waiting for our plane to take off. It was great. All right. On the women's side, uh, less sort of big road firepower, but not none, absolutely. Uh, Lauren DiCrescenzo, who is actually a Boulder local here, I believe, took the win in the women's race. It was for a long time. Teammate uh, Flavia Oliveira, a Brazilian, Lauren uh, escaped, I think it was about 20, 30 miles to go, I think, maybe even before that. This is before the, uh, we did not quite have the television coverage, so I'm not exactly exactly sure when that happened. But escaped solo, crossed the line solo, very emotional. She's also been through quite a bit of, well, just injuries and, and, and turmoil over the last couple of years. She had a really bad uh, traumatic brain injury. And uh, she had a, like a broken arm or broken collarbone last year that she returned from, but the TBI has sort of really defined her career in a lot of ways. And so this, this is sort of a return for her, which is really cool to see. And, uh, I think that, that races like this, one of the cool things is that, you know, old road pros, people, which is big engines, but don't necessarily want to chuck themselves into a, into a professional Peloton anymore can come up show up here and do really well so <clears throat> great racing from unbound uh you probably caught all of the coverage that we had up on the site from dan cavallari who was our man on the ground in kansas and there's more stuff coming he shot lots of bike checks and a little story about some tire pressure and all sorts of good stuff if you missed that head over to cyclingtips.com check it all out and there is even more coming. And I believe, James, he's going to be on Nerd Alert. Yeah, I was just going to say, stay tuned for Nerd Alert this week because we are going to have Dan on as a special guest as our on-the-site gravel correspondent this year. All right, so that's what happened at Unbound. It's funny. Like, how do you cover, how do you cover gravel racing? We're a media entity, so we spend a lot of time thinking about this. And I ask a lot of folks about, like, sort of what, what are you actually interested in? What do you want to see? Yeah, it's like, how do we approach this? There's definitely sort of attempts to make it a mirror of road racing, right? I mean, we've got live television coverage. Uh, there's plenty of sort of traditional race reports out there. There's a lot of, you know, athlete profile stuff that's happening. There's a vocal group of people who, whenever we 
treat Unbound like the big event that it is, because let's be honest, it is it's probably it's probably the biggest bike race in America at this point. Any I don't think there's any disagreement there. Like what else would be bigger? People get a little sort of offended by that, like we're taking our focus away from road racing or something like that. But I I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a fundamentally quite interesting event, particularly Honestly, particularly now that we've got some real heavy hitters at the front of this thing, it's worth talking about. It's, I think, and the the it's interesting. The, the the traffic. I kept a very close eye on the traffic over the weekend, and sort of who was watching or who was who was checking out which stories and things like that. And traffic was quite good on it. So, I mean, the other thing that's kind of cool about this event is, you know, Kaylee, you were saying that it's arguably the biggest drop, I guess, drop bar race in the United States. Um, what's cool is how much attention that it has gotten from you know, world tour pros, as much as people have been kind of like you know, lamenting the, you know, kind of like racification of gravel, whatever, but, um, there's no prize money at unbound gravel. So what people are going for here is basically just sort of like, you know, prestige and bragging rights or whatever. Well, but I, I do think that, so, so I guess here's the fundamental, this is what I was kind of trying to get at before and not really, um, not really explaining very well is the interest in this race. Is it organic? Or is it the whole bike industry trying to sell gravel bikes? And this is the one focal point that they've all sort of grabbed onto. And they all use it to, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of money spent by the bike industry at Unbound now. They're all activating. They're all, they all have athletes there. They're, you know, talk about like why some of these athletes show up and, and do this race. Well, because, you know, if you're Pete Stetna and you're trying to generate uh, essentially marketing value for your sponsors, this is the number one place to do it. And I think that that's, like I said, that, that was sort of the big question ahead of this race for me was, is, is this an organic thing? Is there actual organic interest? Is, are fans out there interested in what happened at this race and why and, you know, the tech behind it and all the, all the rest of these stories? Or is this just sort of the, the marketing engine of the broader bike industry churning into gear and trying to turn this race into something bigger and more important than it actually is. And for me, that was kind of answered where, like, like I said, there was quite a bit of organic interest. There was a, quite a bit of traffic on the stories that we put up from Unbound. And I think there are a lot of people who are genuinely interested in this stuff. The more cynical out there, and there was a, there was a couple sort of like Instagram stories floating around that were, that were pointing at this. Like I said, the more cynical out there very much reviewing this as just a, a – just a marketing opportunity, right? Just a, a, a race that had been, one, purchased by a massive entity, Lifetime, and then two, co-opted by the bike industry and turned into a marketing event. And I think that there are elements of truth to both of those, but in the end, there's still, I can now kind of confidently say, after watching the reaction, there's still quite a lot of genuine organic interest in this thing. So anyway, I mean... It, doesn't really change the way that Cycling Tips is going to approach big gravel events. We think they're quite interesting. We think the tech side and the service side in particular are quite interesting. But I, I, I think that that question for me was somewhat answered this weekend. Did any of you watch it on TV? No. I mean, yeah, James, James, you don't watch bike racing anyway. But took the weekend off. Dane, you were. I didn't watch any. I didn't watch any bike racing this weekend. Yeah, Dane was up looking at bighorn sheep or something like that. That's that is mountains. accurate. That is accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what the flow sports numbers are, and I don't know if they would actually share them. But I'd be interested to see how many people watch it because you know it was wasn't a perfect broadcast. The 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 steady cam could use some help 
for example. Some more steady. Uh, some more steady, some additional steady. <laughs> but it was still interesting to watch. It was more interesting than I thought it would be. I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, my dad was telling me he was watching the Dauphiné and they had the French and English audio both coming through the stream at the same time. So clearly not even road racing has quite figured out uh, broadcasting yet. So it's it's hard to really blame Unbound for, for not being perfect, you know? Yeah, I give them credit for trying to figure it out. And yeah, it's the it's like I said, it's the biggest race in America right now, which is wild to think about. But we've got no tour of California. We've got no big stage races. We've I don't I can't even think of a bigger from an impact perspective, not necessarily like, you know, number of entrances like that number of entrances is a, is a they all cap themselves anyway. But from an impact perspective, I can't think of anything more important in in U.S. right now. Anyway, moving on. Tour de Suisse. Dane, what's going on? Yeah, well, let's talk about the women's race first uh, because it's already over. It's uh, The women's race is a, it's an inaugural year. It's a 2.1 this year, so not a world tour race. It's it's a little bit below that. But there were still plenty of big names that showed up uh, for the two-day Tour de Suisse women where we saw a couple of interesting things. Uh, Elise Shabby, who has really kind of established herself as a rider to watch recently, took the first stage, and Marta Bastianelli won the second stage. Lizzie Dagnan took the overall win, which... She's got to be happy about, uh, and I think she's really, yeah, she just keeps showing that, that she's got uh, a lot left in the tank, and I'm, I'm thinking she's going to be, yeah, a rider to watch for the rest of the season, and of course the women's season at this point, it's, it's you know, the calendar's a little strange just at this point, it's kind of a dearth of major races, but that, and that's one reason why the Tour de Suisse women was maybe a bigger deal than we'd expect from a 2.1. Uh, but it did deliver. We, you know, like I said, we saw some some big names, both up and comers, and yeah, former world champions uh, taking taking wins there at the Tour de Suisse women. Uh, and hopefully, it'll be kind of extended to be more than just two days in the future. Uh, I'm slightly biased here, like, but I just want to touch on how uh, how amazing it is to see Lizzie Dagnan repeatedly at the top of the sport here as as a parent. I think that's quite inspirational and. Deserve, deserves a mention here uh, you know she had a fairly rough spring um, and a fairly rough was it 2019 when she first came back to road racing after uh, having her daughter there and now you know she her her first breakthrough after that was the, the women's tour and then last year of course um, uh, the course and now back to winning ways in, in 2021 I think that's uh, deserves well you know for, for me as a parent anyway, it's quite inspirational to see her right at the top of the, the sport Agreed. Super cool. What happened in the men's race, Dane? Yeah, so so far, not too much. I mean, there's a second stage just going on right now, but we have seen, I think, one of the most interesting storylines at the Tour de Suisse. We've already seen a little bit of that. Uh, the first stage was a time trial, and there are quite a few good time trialists here. Stefan Kung won the stage. One of the good time trialists in attendance at the Tour de Suisse is Tom Dumoulin, who is returning to racing after being on a little bit of a hiatus for several months. Of course, he took that lengthy break uh, announced earlier in the year. He was going to take a to step away from racing for a while. Uh, returned to racing at the Tour de Suisse and he was 16th in the opening TT, which is not bad if you have not raced the entire year. Uh, finishing the top 20 in the opening TT and Dumoulin wants to race the Tokyo Olympics, so he kind of needs to be already getting back to a decent amount of form. And I think, yeah, finishing inside the top 20 in that opening TT was a pretty good sign that despite his lengthy layoff from racing, uh, he has not been away from training. He, he's definitely been training on home roads for the past several weeks or months, uh, despite his lack of competition. And I think, yeah, the, the fact that he was up there is a good sign for him. 
uh, and and we'll hopefully we'll see that again. There is another time trial at the race coming up, so hopefully we'll, we'll see another day of him doing well in the TTs. I'm really glad to see him back. I think he's really good for the sport. Um, he's a he's a he's a great interview. Uh, he's brought some great storylines with him over his career, particularly that time he won the Giro uh, after overcoming some difficulties on the road. Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm really glad to see Dumoulin back and uh, and racing quite well. Are you talking about his real shit day? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, that was just, it was just a that day was crap. Oh man, we could do this. Dave Rome would be so Dave Rome would be so proud of you right now, <laughs> Kaylee. I, I have to admit, I I did not expect to see Tom Dumoulin return to the sport, uh, especially not so soon. How, how often do you hear about you know writers? taking a break and and never really returning thankfully we don't hear about writers taking a break too often but generally when we do we don't really see them return all that often unless i'm having a complete mind blank here now so yeah great to see him back and especially back so soon yeah apparently he just needed a couple months off you know sometimes you need that uh, a little sabbatical so to speak i'm i'm i'm, I'm kind of surprised more athletes don't do it really because uh, their off seasons are really quite short and i guess there's always the concern that you would struggle to return if you truly took a bunch of time off, right? But uh, yeah, like you said, most of the time, if a rider says, I'm retiring, and it's a bit sort of before normal time, you could say, it's, uh, meaning, you know, once performances have started to tail off, they're getting a bit older. If it's before then, they generally don't come back. Generally, there's a reason. Yeah. I, I think it's sort of like taking a gap year after high school. I wish I'd taken a gap year after high school. Sound, sounds good in theory, but I have to wonder how many kids then do not go on to college yeah i think i should have taken a gap year <laughs> i was enough of an idiot freshman year that maybe one year older i would have been less of an idiot freshman year of, of college possibly eh, probably not <laughs> i was just gonna say that word sabbatical always reminds me of the formula one driver mika hakkinen who famously took a sabbatical and never returned so uh, maybe maybe that's where <laughs> well no he's, he's still on he's still on his sabbatical yeah. Oh, okay. It's okay. A very yeah, long sorry. sabbatical. Very long sabbatical. Yeah. If I made like fifteen million dollars a year, I too would disappear on a sabbatical and never to return. <laughs> That's what I would do. Do we have any other Swiss? Yeah. Just another uh, note from that early TT from from the GC perspective. A nice ride from uh, Richard Carpas to finish, also in the top twenty, right right near uh, Tom Dumoulin. I think showing that he's definitely interested in the overall battle, and to me, he's probably the favorite. Uh, to win the race so assuming julian alaphilippe kind of tails off in the high mountains which you never know because he he had a nice time trial and you never really know what to expect from alaphilippe i do think that carpas has established himself as the favorite for this race and we'll see what happens in the mountains um so yeah a, a race to watch over the next few days there's quite a few big stage hunters here that the gc battle is kind of yeah not not quite so many big big stars uh, for the gc battle maybe it's because there's two concurrent tour de france preparation races well, yeah, and again, the two biggest tour favorites aren't going to, they went to neither. So, yeah, not not good, not a good formula for a good GC battle. But Matthew Vanderpool's there. Julian Alaphilippe is there. So uh, plenty of reason to watch kind of the, the stage battles. And there's quite a few Haley stages. Uh, Mark Hershey, another guy uh, for the Haley stages. And there's like three in a row here in the first few days of the race. Although by the time you're listening to this podcast, we might have already finished one or two of them. So, yeah, retroactively, go check them out if you haven't yet. There we go. Tour de Suisse. Dauphiné Unbound. That's racing wrapped up. Before we go on to today's Nerd Nugget, on June 
third, that's just last week, Rafa finally entered the mountain bike market. The whole new range of performance trail wear, a dynamic roster of elite mountain bike athletes, and new commitments to trail advocacy initiatives. Rafa extends its ambition to make cycling the most popular sport in the world to mountain biking. While the brand's heritage surely lies in road racing, they've been pushing the envelope in off-road exploration for years, pioneering technical riding apparel for gravel, bikepacking, and more. Now, the London-based brand is going even further with performance-engineered, style-driven trail wear. Rafa Performance Trailwear uses the toughest technical fabrics tested in the roughest natural environments. The new range incorporates environmentally friendly materials and a progressive fit to ensure you don't have to sacrifice performance for durability or style or sustainability. The collection consists of nearly everything you need to ride your favorite local trails from trail shorts and cargo bib liners to technical tops and jackets. The collection is available on rafa.cc and in Rafa Clubhouses worldwide thanks to rafa for sponsoring today's episode as always i like to throw a little side note in here so actually i i I chucked an early thoughts review of this stuff up on the on the site last week dave rome and i collaborated on this and the gear is quite nice it's good it's it's quite understated materials are really nice the shorts are well done i was pleased with it you know i think i mentioned this in the in the story but you know they're not going to come in and change mountain bike clothing like they kind of did you could argue with road stuff about 10 years ago but it's 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 nice mountain bike stuff now check it out do you remember kaylee the the weird like baggy not baggy shorts that gore tried to do for mountain bike didn't Asos do that too uh yes i think Asos tried to do that as well yeah, with like baggy fronts and tight backs. Yeah, or like you know, it was like it was like baggy sides and like tight inner thighs or something like that. They 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 tried to change mountain biking. It didn't go well. No, no. I, the reality of mountain bike clothing is it's just clothing. <laughs> it's just like shorts and a shirt. Weird. And you don't need. You just need the right material, and in the shorts, you need roughly the right cut, and that's all, that's all you need. That's all you need. And that's what they did. They kept it simple, which is exactly what they should be doing. And if, if you like the Rafa branding and if you like uh, basically, you know, a, a, a nice, simple jersey, it's a good option. Thanks again for sponsoring today's episode. We appreciate it, Rafa. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd All alert. right. Nerd it's alert. time for Nerd Nuggets. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Dane Cash has left the meeting. It just popped up on my screen. Uh, Dane has to go write the Tour de Suisse race report. So the three of us are going to talk the UCI. So we have sort of previously touched on the NCAP issue at the Giro, the INEOS NCAP issue, and the UCI coming down on, well, basically the team using those NCAPs, even though they've been in use for a while and we can't figure out why they would be up against the rules. James? There's some, there's some, there's some inconsistency here, right? Well, yeah. So, yeah. Just to recap a little bit, um, Filippo Gano specifically has been using these Aero Coach Aox Titan 100, 100 mil deep front wheels for his time trial bike. Uh, and you know, while they have a little cover for the valve, which seems very clear to be a fairing, um, 
The UCI took issue with the arrow-shaped end caps on the hub, which they deemed to be fairing, uh, fairings and therefore illegal. Um, so uh, Aerocoach had to come out with round end caps, which are less aerodynamic. However, what I am wondering about, and what I, th I believe a VeloClub member may have brought this up as well, is if the UCI took issue with the arrow-shaped end caps on these Aerocoach front hubs, why are arrow-shaped headset spacers allowed, along along with other things like, for example, the, for example, the 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 aerodynamic covers on Filippo Ganna's Pinarello time trial bike, which are very much fairings, as far as I can tell, like literally fairings, like literally yeah. fairings. So, so why are those okay, but these end caps are not? So, um, I, I don't have an answer to this question. However, um, Ronan, however, may have an answer to this question sooner than later. I have one answer for you, sorry, uh, or actually, and uh, that the fairings on Filippo Ganna's brakes are okay because the fairing rule does not apply to Freeman forks, apparently. What? Uh, yeah, which makes it, I think, opens up far more questions than it answers. It does because there are all these other things that, like, you know, all these, so many of these time trial bikes have have triathlon versions that have these like bolt-on bits, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like they have previously applied to frames and forks. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. It's somewhere in the regulations there. And just to explain what you were speaking about there, James, was that I, I have had a conversation with Michael Rogers, who is the innovation manager at the UCI since uh, we published that article and since last, last week's podcast. And Michael has actually agreed to come on to a podcast with us or, or we're working on getting Michael onto a podcast uh, to sort of explain some of the discrepancies is it between some of the rules or how they're applied and and you know why some things are considered a fairing and some some others are not considered a fairing and just some of the sort of confusion that surrounds some of the UCI technical regulations and yeah it'll, it'll be I, th I think it's going to be super interesting to hear from from Michael just just on that and and get the UCI stance on, on quite a lot of these uh questions that I know for myself personally, I've been asking time and time again down through the years. But uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to to that opportunity. And just to be clear here, Michael Rogers is Mick Rogers, uh, the former world time trial champion, winner of stages of multiple Grand Tours. Which I think is, you know, it's it's a good thing to see somebody with uh Mick or Michael's experience uh now in that role within the UCA. Of course, uh um had had the job before, previously second in Tour de France, I think. So it's not the first time someone with that level of experience has been in the post, but I, I think certainly uh Michael Rogers is, you know, having been a three time world champion, I think, in the time trial. Uh, and given how much what we're often talking about relates to time trials, he's probably particularly skilled to 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 be in that position. I got an email from him and it had Michael Rogers at the bottom and it took me like five minutes to realize who that was. I was like, oh, Mick. Oh, right. <laughs> right. I had no idea that I, I had that that position tends to have a fair amount of turnover um, because the rule book that the UCI has is terrible. And so it's a basically impossible position. So, you know, we sit here. And we just kind of dunk on on the UCI for for sort of random implementation of their rules, it seems. But part of the problem is just the rulebook itself, which is really poorly written, really kind of vague in, in, a, in a lot of the wrong places. And I mean, I've, I've been talking to whoever this sort of UCI technical coordinator is. I've been talking to v this person, which has been like eight different people for like a decade. 
And every single time I have these conversations, they sort of explain why, you know, their interpretation of this rule is is X, Y, Z. But the problem is there's room for interpretation. That is the fundamental problem. Technical rules should not have room for interpretation. Exactly. And and I think fundamentally, we, basically, we're going to continue to have these issues with the UCI. And we will continue to point them out until they rewrite the rulebook, which there's been zero discussion of, uh, but needs to happen. It really does. It, it, it Not only does it need to happen because the rulebook is poorly written and, and not clear, but also because the, the sport has moved on a long way since this rulebook was originally written, which is basically came out of the Lugano Charter in, I think, 99. So we're talking about 20-plus years and how much development has happened across the sport. Bikes look very, very different than they did in 1997, 1998. It's time for a rethink, I think, of a lot of these rules and regulations. And I just don't see any... I don't see any real desire within the UCI at the moment to really get that done. I think what the UCI will say is, or what I know the UCI will say is that they are, you know, trying to protect the the sport and and ensure that it's always the athlete's performance that is first and foremost the determinant of any result, rather than equipment or uh, differences between between teams' budget and that. But you know, I think in there lies the issue, and that regardless, as we've seen, uh, you know, in the in the in the past few weeks, regardless of the regulations that are in place different teams have hugely vastly different budgets and they can dedicate budget to finding loopholes and in, in these regulations that other teams simply can't so you know if we really want to ensure and and i, I i'm not saying I'm, a, I'm an advocate for this but if we really wanted to ensure uh you know equal opportunity or, or whatever way we want to look at it there in terms of every team has a, and every rider has a chance of getting res- result and and it's really their their uh, fitness and their performance that will determine that result then it's probably budget caps that are going to have a bigger impact rather than the regulations banning you know a fairing or, or whatever it might be and then and then secondly what and again i don't know if i'm an advocate for this or not but second what we need is probably something like formula one where it's literally a thousand page document that that dictates every single uh regulation and and how it is to be interpreted without any um, sort of confusion surrounding any any aspect of it, and and I know Formula One teams are constantly trying to find loopholes as well. But um, you know that that is probably where we need to go, and and I, I, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. Well, and and the way that the the FIA, the sort of governing body behind car racing, the way that the FIA deals with sort of technical issues, which is they, they basically what will often happen is a team will lodge a complaint against another team and then it sort of goes to arbitration in it and there's like a whole process around it and at the end there's a decision made okay this brake duct is allowed or not allowed this whatever else is allowed or not allowed and there's a understandable process where both sides get to sort of have this conversation uh, not necessarily in public but at least sort of the 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 explanation is then in public we don't get that in cycling. We just get like, oh, this wheel that was fine yesterday. Nope, nope, no good anymore. Can't do that anymore. No real explanation. No opportunity for for sort of public comment. No opportunity for uh, any sort of clarity or, uh, <laughs> yeah, no opportunity for for anybody else to have any real say. Just sort of you know a dictatorship of on the of the technical nature. 
that's that's what's unfortunate, right? And that's that's what that's what annoys the the, the hell out of people. Like, I mean, how many even stories of of okay, well, this TT bike passed the UCI jig at the last race, but failed it at this one. So how on, how on earth are you supposed to set up a bike with stuff like that? Anyway, mini rant, but that like th there's no process is the problem. Uh, and and not to go on another rant, but since we had that article and since we had the podcast last week, uh, the UCA has just published a f uh, some changes or tweaks to its regulations this week. And one of those, uh, I believe, new regulations states that devices which capture other physical data, including any metabolic values such as but not limited to glucose or lactate, are not authorized in competition. Uh, and what that effectively translates to is you can't see data from within yourself basically while while you're racing um, and what that probably relates to most is that uh, continuous glucose monitor that I was using for Everesting um, Super Sapiens one yeah exactly and I, I just really struggle to understand how something that can help athletes better understand their fueling in, in a sport that has so many issues with eating disorders down through the years it can be something that the uci would deem to be negative maybe, maybe i'm going too far off track here now but i've just seen that uh update to the regulations since and yeah it's a uh, you know i i i guess the concern is that if writers understand that better or can see it live then they can tailor their fueling and, and perform better based on that and perhaps other writers wouldn't have the uh the opportunity to do so and and that would create a and uh, an imbalance there, but yeah, I, I, yeah, hard to understand. Basically, here's your spec bike, kind of like what they do at the Little Five Hundred, and here is your single UCI issued bottle of water. Here is your three hundred kilometer course through the mountains. Here is a paper map. There is no support. Have at it. Good luck. That would be amazing. I would be all in favor of this. Just like, just like <laughs> the good old, just like the good old days. The Little Five. I was actually going to bring up Little Five Hundred bikes because that one's extra fun because Little Five Hundred is a team event. Um, but you only get, so you have four riders, but two bikes. So you have to figure out what size to run for all four people. And it's a single speed with a coaster brake and you just like skid to a stop and chuck the bike at the other person and they get on and ride away. And there's like tons of rules around the actual bike itself. It's just very simple, you know, 32 spokes, same frame. Everyone's got the same frame. Everyone's got the same tires, all that stuff. It, I mean... That's the that's the end of the spectrum, right? That that's the if you take the sort of philosophy that the UCI espouses, which is we want to protect the sport from they basically want to protect it from technical innovation because they want to keep it a sport between athletes and not between engineers, basically. The the natural conclusion of that is you end up with, you know, the Merck's hour record or little five hundred bikes for everybody or whatever it is. And I think that they're trying to sort of find a middle ground here, but at the end of the day, I think maybe that sort of original remit needs to be thought through again because it is fundamentally a sport both of man and machine, woman and machine. Both of those things matter if you spend the time to and time and energy and money to improve your your equipment and technology. You should be rewarded for that. I I think personally. Plus plus let's not forget that a large portion of this sport is funded by the industry that is making these bicycles and for them to have an interest in development 
you have to allow that development. And this is the issue in time trial bikes right now. All the development is happening in triathlon bikes, not in UCI legal time trial bikes. Same thing happened in the hour record. As soon as they dropped the Merck's rules, all of a sudden the, the, there was a bunch of industry interest in the hour record. There is something to be said for just allowing these companies to, to kind of have at it, and they'll dump, more, they'll dump more money into development, and we'll have faster, better bicycles. Anyway, all that to say, stay tuned for a future episode because we will hopefully have answers directly from the UCI. So this should be very interesting. Yeah, let's go chat with Mick. That'll be great. All right. Let's wrap up for today. Thanks again to Continental and to Rafa for sponsoring today's episode. And if you are not already a member, go become a Velo Club member. It is massively important to everything we do here at Cycling Tips. You can pick up a Velo Club membership for less than, I don't know, like two coffees a month or something like that. And it's a, you know, it's a hugely important thing for why we can speak truth to power why we can talk about the bike industry in the way that we do. Uh, we love Velo Club. It is, it's, it's, it's the backbone of Cycling Tips at this point. Plus, you get access to you know, special Velo Club Slack where you get to chat with us editors whenever you want, ask us questions. Maybe you'll end up in the podcast. All sorts of good stuff with your Velo Club membership. So go check that out. Cyclingtips.com slash sign up. I would very much appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.